Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. And today, I would like to start out by reminding you that there is lots of tutorials on ConsensusNetwork.io if you're interested in potentially getting into this market, getting your feet wet. These kinds of uh, buying opportunities, I think, are the ones where fortunes are made. I'm not That's not financial advice, but what I'm telling you right now is that it's crazy to me how the world works, right? When Bitcoin was trading near 20,000, everybody and their mother wanted in, and now it is dirt cheap and nobody wants in. But, you know, that's the whole idea that Warren Buffett said to be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. And this is right now fear, right? I'm not saying it's uh, you should buy right now, but I think it's worth looking into. Um, you can go to consensusnetwork.io, get some tutorials, figure out how to buy a little bit of cryptocurrency to play around with and trade, et cetera, if that's something that you're interested in doing. Also, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to get out any, get any of the other newsletter information that we send out. If you are not on my list, uh, make sure to go to consensusnetwork.io and sign up for the newsletter. And uh, finally, on Twitter, you know, I have a relatively new account there, so there's not a lot of people following, but that's another place where I spend a lot of time. So if you want to look up Consensus Network and follow me there, I should have mentioned that before, but um, that's worthwhile doing as well. Uh, like I said, the the account itself is only a couple weeks old, so but I am very active on there. I've never been active on Twitter, but crypto Twitter has kind of got me interested in it. You know, as for today's show, if you follow crypto, and you follow the crypto world vis-a-vis crypto Twitter, et cetera, like I do, it seems, frankly, as an adult, you know, as a, as a 45-year-old guy, almost a little bit ridiculous sometimes with all these personalities threatening each other. And, and then you have all this massive volatility uh, with the digital asset prices, right? It almost seems a little bit embarrassing if you're, in, you're involved with this and you're telling people you are. Of course, you know, what happened with the sell-off recently my friend Tika Tawari, who's got a newsletter, uh, had called this uh, simply uh, nerd wars, right? Conflicts between a bunch of computer geeks and that we should ignore the noise. I tend to agree with him in the larger scheme of things. But remember, these are these computer geeks are the ones who are creating these digital assets and their future in the first place. So that's why I think it is something um, that people pay attention to. And I certainly do as well. But because I do think that this kind of ridiculous chatter hurts the evolution of uh, this asset class. Of course, that whole uh, Bitcoin cash thing that we talk about had nothing to do with Bitcoin. It had to do with Bitcoin cash. And that is another thing that a lot of the mainstream financial outlets don't seem to understand, which uh, uh, drives me personally crazy. In times like these, I think it's important to understand that the un, that the technology that underlies all this stuff still is a world-changing technology. It's blockchain, uh, it's distributed ledgers, and all this was started by one uh, white paper authored by Satoshi Nakamoto, who no one knows who it is or who they are. 
And that one white paper gave us the most, perhaps one of the most elegant ideas of the, uh, certainly of this century so far. It's called Bitcoin. And over time, it is my opinion that we will continue to see Bitcoin evolve into something of tremendous significance uh, to our society. Not just blockchain. You know, there's people who say, oh, yeah, blockchain will, but Bitcoin, you know, won't. You know, they say blockchain, not Bitcoin. I'm actually not in that camp. I used to be, but I'm not anymore. Uh, I think that at, the more and more I learn about Bitcoin in general, the more and more I'm convinced that Bitcoin itself separately will create a tremendous impact in our future. However, I, I think uh, it's pretty clear we aren't there yet. And part of the issue, uh, the main issue right now, apart from widespread adoption of this, is that we are still in early stages trying to understand exactly how we can unleash all of its potential. Uh, as a payment system, which Bitcoin's, uh, which was essentially Bitcoin's initial thesis, it has run up against some challenges with regard to scaling. So how do you keep this elegant system intact while making something that can be used for everyday transactions? That is sort of the multi-trillion dollar question. And this question uh, ultimately led to the major schism in the Bitcoin community in August of 2017, which ultimately led to a, a split between uh, Bitcoin and what is now known as Bitcoin Cash. You know, those Bitcoin Cash people are the ones who are having their own little war on the side now. It's all very confusing to people who are outside of this community. And so I have been trying to get someone to speak intelligently about the issues surrounding the scaling of Bitcoin. And I was really fortunate enough to find someone who I, who I respect a lot. He's a guy um, by the name of Samson Mao. Uh, who is with Blockstream. Samson's a very, very smart guy. Um, you can watch debates with him and Roger Ver of Bitcoin Cash on YouTube. Anyway, when we come back on the show, we're going to drill down on the scalability issues of Bitcoin with Samson. And if you really are interested and want to get to get try to start getting your mind around uh, the thoughts around scaling Bitcoin and the players involved, you are not going to want to miss this episode. So when we come back, Samson Mao. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Samson Mao. Samson is the Chief Strategy Officer of Blockstream, which is a global leader in Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And he's also the CEO of Pixelmatic, which is a company at the forefront of, of the gaming industry. Uh, Samson is recognized as a thought leader amongst Bitcoin enthusiasts. He's frequently being cited by his peers and invited to major events around the world. Uh, Samson, welcome uh, to the show today. Thanks, Buck. Thanks for having me. Listen, I just want to start out. I mean, you're a major voice uh, in this in this area, especially with Bitcoin. Let's start out with just kind of, you know, a little bit of background on how you got into cryptocurrency and found Bitcoin in the first place. I always find that an interesting kind of story. <laughs> 
Sure. So my, my background is um, game. So I've been in the game industry for a long time and building online games, you kind of build these uh, digital and virtual economies. So it's always been a focus of my career. And when I first heard about Bitcoin, it just seemed very novel and interesting because you have this digital economy that no one's actually in control. When you're building a game economy, you know, sometimes the big games like EVE or others, they'll bring in economists to help you manage the economy, but it's still centrally uh, managed. The currency is issued by the game company and they can, you know, inflate or deflate the supply as needed and make adjustments. But with Bitcoin, it kind of is independent of any entity. It's just uh, a collective thing that exists outside of the control of any party. Right, right. And so how did you, I mean, how did you find it? Did you, you know, did somebody, was it just like one of these things where a friend was talking about it and the next thing you know, you're reading and, and you got the virus or is that? How I actually it? read it on TechCrunch. So I used to read a lot of uh, tech news and I just saw an article, I think in 2013. Okay. Yeah, so 2013. So that's, that's obviously pretty early. So you discover Bitcoin. And then since then, obviously, you know, especially when it when it comes to what you're talking about with gaming, the gaming industry, etc. What made you kind of stick to the idea of, you know, Bitcoin as sort of the really the only protocol, the only blockchain really to follow as opposed to necessarily sort of, you know, following these more open or flexible platforms like Ethereum or anything like that. Was there anything in particular that kind of drove you in that direction? Well, I think I was in, well, I was actually working at uh, an exchange, uh, BTC China, BTCC. Mm -hmm. So at that time, our trading pairs were um, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Chinese Yuan. So that was basically all that really existed uh, outside of some less, uh, less well-known coins, I guess. And then Ethereum came a lot later. I still remember when uh, they were trying to launch Ethereum. They came to visit us and Vitalik wanted us to list Ethereum, which we didn't do <laughs> at the time. But I always thought that the thesis be behind a lot of these coins, like I think Adam Back calls them feature coins, but they, they just have some novel element to it. And I, I always thought that the thesis behind Ethereum was wrong, which is they're trying to put everything into a blockchain rather than just to uh, verify verify computation. So they're actually trying to compute with the blockchain. And having actually run an exchange, you know that blockchains don't really scale well. Um, managing your infrastructure is a very important part of running an exchange. And being able to run a full node to verify the transactions actually reached you is critical. Because if you accept a $100 million deposit from a trader, you want to make sure that that transaction is settled. Right, right. And Ethereum, you didn't feel like had the same ability to, to, you know, to create that finality? Not really. It always felt very janky. And the whole infrastructure just didn't seem as solid and robust as Bitcoin. Bitcoin is like a, a tank or a aircraft carrier. It's very elegant, simple and robust. It does one thing really well, which is settlement. Right. Does that have anything to do you think about, you know, in terms of Ethereum, at least there's still, 
you know, we don't we don't know who uh, Satoshi is, right? We don't know. There's really no leader of Bitcoin per se. And then there there's people who claim to be <laughs> Satoshi, but which we we can talk about momentarily. But how much of that do you think is the fact that you know when you have a blockchain like Ethereum, I mean, Vitalik's still around, right? So Vitalik's still kind of the boss. So when you have a big you know, a, a bug in Ethereum, it's still potentially possible to vote and, and, and reverse that transaction and, you know, have a split with Ethereum Classic. <laughs> yeah, well, that is exactly the case. So right. you have um, a group, either individual, an individual like Vitalik or a group that is really in control of this blockchain. And we see it time and time again with Ethereum, which is if something happens, they'll try to roll it back. Right. And that really defeats the purpose of having... A blockchain if you can just revert anything you don't like uh, it's the same as someone else controlling your money and inflating the supply or doing whatever yeah absolutely so so bitcoin obviously and you mentioned this uh, in for blockchains in general but for bitcoin in particular um let's focus on that there are some challenges that we know about such as um scaling and speed uh, which I know you guys are working on, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But for right now, at least, we know, um, I believe, you know, it's what is about seven transactions per second with Bitcoin. And for reference, Visa does, I think right now, about 4,000 transactions per second. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the, uh, this was one of the reasons for the bis big disagreement uh, in Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin community that ultimately in 2017 resulted in this hard fork that occurred. Can you talk a little bit about what happened then? And then ultimately, you know, from a layman's perspective, what was what was this whole schism all about? And and what was the fundamental disagreement? So the fundamental disagreement was making a change to the consensus rules of Bitcoin. So there was a group of people that really wanted a hard fork, which is essentially uh, changing or loosening the rules of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has a lot of consensus rules. Most people will know there's a cap of 21 million coins. Uh, there's a halving every four years where the supply is cut in half. And you know there's a one, uh, one megabyte block. Now it's four mega weights. It's a bit more complex. Um, and the block time is roughly 10 minutes. So those are like the most popular ones, but there's actually a lot of consensus rules because Bitcoin is just software. It's just a set of rules that we all agree to and that's it. Like that's all software is, right? It's right. Uh, commands and rules. And if you want to change that, you have to have everyone agree to the new rules. And that's what a hard fork is. You're making a change that you know, is incompatible and everyone has to upgrade. So, what they're trying to do was push through a change in block size. And when, when the developers really said, we can't do that, first of all, they can't do that. They don't have the power to affect change. They, if they thought it was a good idea, they could recommend it and say, you know, Buck, you should upgrade because of these reasons. But they can't force you and say, Buck, you upgrade today. Um, and yeah, they don't have the power to upgrade the network by force. So fundamentally, though, the the idea here, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I always, you know, I've kind of come to see this is a, a, a disagreement. The underlying disagreement is how do you scale? And what became Bitcoin Cash ultimately was that you're going to you're going to stick to this idea that Bitcoin itself will be the day to day 
you know, transaction vehicle, like you'll be buying Starbucks, you'll be doing all your transactions with with Bitcoin itself, and therefore you need to increase block size so that you can increase speed. That sounds like that's kind of their argument. And what I'm understanding from more Bitcoin purists is what your misunderstanding here is that Bitcoin serves its purpose and it's the underlying asset. And we can build a second layer on top of that to do all those daily things that you're talking about. Is that, do you, do you feel like that's kind of a fair assessment of, of the difference? I think that's a fair assessment, but it's a bit deeper. There's a lot more nuance to all the, um, I guess, politics and drama over how to upgrade. So I talked before about how there's a lot of other coins and they all have some feature to it. Some of them are, are good. So there's Monero, which has privacy at its core. But a lot of coins, they try to sell themselves as having more TPS. And it largely has to do with pumping their own coin and marketing themselves. So if you break down what Bitcoin is, it has all these rules and properties. And one thing that you could nitpick on really quickly is a transaction per second metric, right? Right. But transactions per second only matter if you're a payments provider, right? Visa is not a store of value. It's not an asset. It's just a mechanism to move your money and for small payments. I might buy coffee, right? And I need to pay quickly, right? Right. But Bitcoin from day one has never been a payments rail. There is 10-minute block times, and that's not even guaranteed. It depends on mining. There's a, a, a distribution of blocks. Like You could get three in 10 minutes. You could get, I think I've seen three blocks in a minute. Or you could wait an hour before a block is generated. So it's never been a payments rail. But for a lot of these other projects, a lot of these other coins, they want to sell themselves. So what do they do? They say, we're faster. But faster doesn't really mean anything in if you're not a payments gateway or payment right. provider. Right. So in this, in, in this scenario, again, um, uh, understanding, and I, maybe it makes sense for us to kind of talk a little bit about that second layer, Lightning Network. And... To me, the um, Lightning Network is sort of like this. Uh, you use the example of a, a credit card, right? So now, with a credit card, obviously you've got you know you're making some payments, but those payments ultimately aren't totally settled until you pay your credit card bill, right? Mm-hmm. And so, is Lightning Network sort of like a credit card in that regard? And then when you actually pay the bill. That's that actually goes on the blockchain. So it's basically a, you know, something that allows settlement, a delayed settlement. Yes, I think a credit card is a good example, or you could use an example of a bar tab. Right. So if you're at a bar, you don't you don't pay every time you buy a drink. You give them your card and you settle at the end of the night. So yeah, you could extend that and say the credit card. You spend for a month and then you pay once right. and settle. So how would this? How does Lightning give us a sense, if you would, like what you? Um, and I'm not I'm not entirely clear on sort of the time frame that we're talking about for a functional Lightning network per se. But when we have a fully integrated Lightning network type thing, like what does that look like? Are we walking around with credit cards ultimately, or are we? I mean, are we walking around with? Yeah, you know, what does that transaction look like? I would say it's not a credit card. It would be more like a pre-funded debit card. Okay. So when you open a channel, I can open a channel to you. 
right. and that means we I lock up some money on on the Bitcoin network. So Bitcoin is always used, even in Lightning. So we open a channel, I lock up some Bitcoin, and then I push it through this channel to you as I pay you. But I can also go through you, if you allow it, to route to other people. So I can route to Gordy, right, right. through you. Right. And by this way, we have it, a whole network where we can pay anybody over Lightning, as long as we're not exceeding capacity. But Lightning is developed for micropayments or even nanopayments. So it's not meant for doing large transactions. You would still do large transactions, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars or more on the main chain. Right. Just like, I guess, if you were talking about settling dollars, I mean, you don't use, you know, if you're doing a big transaction and you're, you know, sending somebody a half million dollars for something, you're not going to use a credit card. You're going to do a wire transfer in that situation and it's not going to happen instantaneously, right? Is that sort of the yep. analogy there? Yeah. So the lightning, a lightning wallet would kind of be like your spending wallet. You would have in there what you would carry in your wallet. You wouldn't carry, you know, $10,000 in your wallet. Right. Right. So help me understand the, um, I mean, going back to the whole Bitcoin cash um, theory or the you know, just that overall idea of internet digital money in real time, right? Because the the Bitcoin Cash guys, the Bcash guys, whatever you want to call them, that that's really their argument, right? They're like, we want to bring this back to, you know, the original intent, which was the um, internet of money. Is the idea that you guys in the in the uh, Bitcoin purist camp is it just that? Listen, you know, you just can't chase this thing with block size forever. Right. At some point, you have to say, this is what we have. This is we know it's a software that works and we build a second layer. And then they are in a constant sort of we're going to have to chase it to higher and higher scale. Is that ultimately what what the argument That's, against that model would be? I, I guess so. I guess that it's a lot of people that don't understand technology. I mean, a yeah. lot of the people in that camp first said lightning doesn't work. And to go back to an earlier point you made, like, is Lightning already working? It's already running. I think uh, there's a couple million dollars of capacity on the network already and you know, several thousand nodes. And you could already use it to buy stuff. So the Blockstream store uh, accepts Lightning. A lot of different merchants accept uh, Lightning payments. I have a hat store that accepts Lightning. But it's, it's actually quite mature right now. It's, it's grown a lot in the past year. But the, the Bcash camp, they're basically saying, yeah, it has to be on chain, but it is a dead end in terms of scaling. You cannot increase the block size forever. So there are trade-offs. So going back to the TPS um, discussion we had before, like you can always increase the transactions per second, but you'll centralize the network because if we only have two nodes and they're in AWS, then we can have really high TPS but that's not very decentralized, right? right. It, it'll be data center to data center. So they're kind of uh, misleading people either intentionally or because of their own ineptitude, but they're basically pushing people into a dead end. So your network will run from nodes in a data center. And this is a problem that Ethereum has shown. Not a lot of people talk about that, but most it's very hard to run an Ethereum full node. A lot of the exchanges, I still have a lot of friends in the exchange space, they're struggling to keep an Ethereum full node running, which means that you'll have to host it in, say, Infura, which is 
hosting company set up by Ethereum. And basically you've gone from a you know, decentralized network of nodes around the world run by individuals back to cloud. Right, right. Which is uh, kind of pointless. Right. Now, is 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 the is the Lightning Network? How much can you scale, or is it infinite? Basically, it's basically infinite. So, we've done some tests. Uh, you can have about five hundred transactions per second per channel. So, if you multiply that out by how many thousands of channels there are, you can get to millions of transactions. So, a per channel second. being in an individual, uh, from me to say you, right. Right. And then, right, exactly. And then it just becomes exponential because as you said, if I have a channel to, you know, our friend, our mutual friend Gordy, mm -hmm. you don't have to make one directly to Gordy. You could, you could make, you could go right through me. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. That makes sense. It, tell me kind of, is it, so what does Blockstream do in this? Are you guys the one who are developing this technology? Tell us a little bit about what Blockstream does. So we do a lot of, um, blockchain infrastructure, uh, to put it simply. We're working on Lightning. We're one of the three companies that are uh, contributing to Lightning protocol. So our implementation is C Lightning, and there's two or three other companies also um, creating their own client. Um, we contribute to Bitcoin, and we also invest heavily in uh, sidechain technology. So we recently launched the Liquid Network, which is a sidechain of Bitcoin, which is a separate blockchain, but anchored to Bitcoin. And the way you unlock Bitcoin in Liquid is that you uh, lock them on the main chain. So it's a one-to-one -one peg. So why would you use, why would you, or, or in what scenario would you use Liquid as opposed to um, the Lightning Network? Is it based on size of transaction or, or how, how would you, when would be the appropriate time to use that as opposed to uh, the Lightning Network? So the Liquid Network is an inter-exchange settlement network primarily. You can also issue assets on, on Liquid too, but it's really designed originally to settle between um, exchanges. So you might be a trader and you want to move your funds from exchange A to B and take advantage of some arbitrage opportunity. In that case, if you're moving your funds on chain, you would have to wait for several confirmations. It could be an hour or a few hours. Got it. Uh, but with Liquid, we have one minute block times. So you're, you know that within a few minutes, you'll be fully settled. So it is for, I guess, larger, more uh, urgent transfers. Because for uh, Lightning, you would be only doing small microtransactions because you have to uh, be within the capacity of the network. Got it. So, so what limits the, I mean, just going back to Lightning again, what limits the size of that transaction? Uh, it's limited by the net, by the software. So previously, I think it was like point, point 0.1 something Bitcoin, and they're, they're removing that limit, I believe. But still, you have to you can only route to the capacity of the network. So it's great for small payments, but when you're getting to hundreds of dollars, you have to find a, a path through the network that has enough funds to send to your destination. Right, right. So presumably, though, over time, the idea would be that, I mean, that that capacity would grow, right? I mean, the capacity mm -hmm. for Lightning Network, where it could be, you know, a few thousand dollars, not just, you know, 50 bucks or 10 bucks or a dollar or something like that. Yes, yeah. I think so. What is it going to take, uh, Samson, to get to that point? Because, I mean, I, 
you know, again, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert in, in any of this. I just, um, you know, I like to interview guys like you to tell me about it, but, um, what is it going to take and, you know, to, to get to the point where we, I mean, I didn't even know that we could actually use lightning network yet. And so what that tells me is that most people probably don't, you know, what, what, what are the next steps in this technology in terms of, you know, spreading it to people to actually start using it? So I think the next step is for more wallets. Um, it's it's a uh, hard to use Lightning right now. There's um there's an Android wallet. I don't think there is an iOS one out yet, but they're all coming. So you have to either use like a, a web wallet or a wallet on your computer or an Android wallet. But as more people uh, develop these uh, wallets, I think we'll have more and more adoption. And I guess the 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 future of you know Bitcoin wallets in general is that they will have Lightning. So a lot of this complexity will be hidden in the long run uh, from the average user. So you'll have a Bitcoin wallet. And if you're making a big transaction, it'll just send it on chain. If you're making a small transaction, they'll send it through a lightning channel. Yeah. Most of the time we probably won't even know, right? I mean, the decisions will probably be made as part of some kind of algorithm, ultimately, uh, Mm -hmm. the size of transaction. Yeah. And presumably something on a phone and most people will just, you know, they won't know the difference between that and using Apple Pay, except that they're, it'll be that kind of ease of use effectively. Yeah. yeah makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the, a lot of the nonsense that happened recently that ultimately probably led to some of the overall instability in the markets. Can you mm-hmm. talk? I know, I know you hate this stuff, <laughs> but you know, somebody who's in the space, you saw, we, we talked about the schism between Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. And that happened in 2017. The market has obviously lost a lot of capitalization, um, in the last, uh, several weeks. And it seemed to at least coincide with some stability that was caused by a split within the Bitcoin cash network. Can you talk can you just generally talk about what that split was about? So Bitcoin Cash split off because a lot of people did not understand consensus rules and how you have to follow the consensus rules. So they think that they can change it at any time and force the network to upgrade. So they they they're very gung-ho about hard forks. So the split within Bcash was just people that didn't understand the rules splitting again. It's, it's a natural progression for them. And I think anybody watching closely could have predicted it. It's like the people that cannot get along with anybody else didn't get along. Yeah. Is it a surprise? Not really. Yeah. And it was pretty brutal too. I mean, it's just, you know, the, uh, the characters involved and, and, uh, there was a, you know, Craig Wright who, claimed to be uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, Roger Ver, and there's, you know, really tough language and that was published everywhere. That kind of stuff overall, though, has a very negative impact in general for the image of, of Bitcoin, doesn't it? Well, unfortunately, yes, but logically it shouldn't matter because a lot of these guys are just criminals. This is like an unregulated market. You have scammers and criminals that are pumping and dumping coins all the time. I think the SEC is going after some of these guys now, but you know, these, this is the same kind of, these guys are cut from that same cloth. They're pumping their coin 
and trying to dump it on their followers. If you look at the history of these guys, they've been pumping coins since, you know, for the last five years. They pick something, pump it up, and then people forget, and then they move on to the next one. It's just a natural progression. Right. Is there any projects out there other than Bitcoin? I mean, you don't have to mention any specific ones, but are you fundamentally, you know, do you do you believe that there's any other projects in blockchain that uh, have value? Or are you truly, um, you know, of the mindset that it's Bitcoin and everything else is just going to go away? Well, I'm less of a maximalist than most. I think there are other viable projects. I think um, Monero is a good project. They're doing a lot of good stuff on privacy. It's probably the only privacy coin that is actually private which is pretty bad when you see the other <laughs> privacy coins with large market caps. Right. And that's why you can't really look at a market cap and say you know, that it, it matters. But um, I think there's another project called Grin. They're, they're doing some stuff with Nimble Wimble. And that's interesting for me, just, just uh, from a technology standpoint. Grin? What is yes. That? Okay. What, what's that? Is that in the gaming industry or something? No, it's, uh, it's, it's based on Nimble Wimble, which is a... <laughs> a change to, I guess, Bitcoin that lets you compress the whole blockchain, essentially. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. So, yeah. So, you're not sort of Bitcoin or die kind of mindset. Well, I think there's a, a use for coins that have a purpose, like yeah. have a, a real function and do what they say they do. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think one of the, the issues um, seems to be like, you know, and it's par partially there. There's some you know fraudulent actors there, but there's also I think just sort of a you know this tendency because investors in general like the word uh, blockchain to blockchainify like everything, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah, well, it's been hot a hot buzzword for sure, and I think a lot of people have been burned, and more people will be burned until they actually realize that it's Bitcoin, not blockchain. So I want to I just kind of finish up a little bit about getting your thoughts generally on, obviously we've had this huge market sell-off, and I know I'm not, not going to ask you for any market predictions, but let me just ask you about what you think is going to happen in terms of the glo global use of, of Bitcoin over the next couple of years. What do you anticipate? Like, how is this thing all going to play out? Because right now, obviously, we're still, you know, certainly if you even go back to 2013, 14, when you first got in, the idea that there would be, you know, you know, Wall Street players, uh, owner of the New York Stock Exchange opening, a, a you know, a, an exchange backed, um, mm -hmm. this, this would all have been, you know, crazy talk, right? Yeah. And um, fidelity. Yeah, and fidelity. Yeah. How do you see this rolling out in the next few years? I mean, obviously, I think it would it would seem to me that kind of some of this nonsense that happened with Craig Wright and that sort of will create some concern <laughs> among smart money um, to be in this environment. But how do you see this all playing out? Well, I think for the most part, nobody really takes uh, Craig seriously. It's yeah. It's been proven that he is a fraud and he's just this crazy con artist trying to scam people. And... Yes, he'll have a following because there are always gullible people, but it's not going to last. And people just have to understand that they're in an unregulated space. You have all these crazy people from around the world that will try to, you know, grandstand and make themselves look like they're important. Yeah. 
But in the next five years or so, I think uh, Bitcoin is going to become far more valuable. I, I've seen a lot of the predictions at like hundreds of thousands per coin. I don't see it's, it, it being impossible. Yeah. It, Bitcoin does exactly what it's supposed to do very, very well. It, it lets you store your value. Even though it's come down a lot, you have to understand that Bitcoin is a very volatile asset. We went to 20,000 in a month. Right. If you come down to, you know, 3,500, it's not crazy. Yeah. Right. And once people understand that it is a volatile asset, it's traded 24 seven. It's not like a stock. Um, you have markets all, all around the world. It's, it, it can be manipulated if you have money to manipulate it. Right. You can short it. You can affect the price with a few hundred million dollars. And there are people that, that have this money at play that they can do this stuff. So you just have to understand that the technology is real. The value proposition is real. It's a store of value, a medium of wealth transfer, and it works, right? Just today, I saw two transactions of $258 million each. And I think they paid a total of um, $47 in fees to move that amount of money, right? That's amazing. So it's just really amazing when you think about what it can do with Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Um, they actually overpaid their fees, <laughs> but that's beside the point. But when you look at like gold, moving gold, it'll cost you, I think uh, Germany repatriated their gold. It cost them $9 million to move 15 billion. And that was over five years. Yeah. So Bitcoin, it works really well. And I think all the institutions are seeing it. A lot of the, um, the high net worth individuals are seeing it. Um, the company is like in the space like uh, New York Stock Exchange, ICE, uh, Fidelity, they all see it. So I think with these new markets opening up, more money will come into Bitcoin. And with Lightning, we're going to see more payments, uh, use, use cases and the platforms accepting Bitcoin over Lightning for payment. Yeah. And, and also to your point, once you have a market cap, that's you know 10x where it is right now in terms of Bitcoin, which is very reasonable, I think, given the amount of institutional money moving into the space. That level of volatility inherently goes down. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So anyway, yeah, this has been uh, really helpful, and uh, thanks for thanks for doing uh, you know doing a little bit of a tutorial for us on some of the some of the uh, nuances of this. Uh, Samson, where can we get those hats? <laughs> uh, they're on my hat store, Excelion.com. Excelion. Are they, that's, I kind of like the one you're wearing, so I was kind of eyeing it. So. Okay. Um, this and is it, not one of my hats, though. <laughs> this is uh, our money exchange hat. I'm just messing with you. And then, obviously, Blockstream. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how we can learn about some of the things that Blockstream is doing. Yeah, so we just recently relaunched our website. It's Blockstream.com, and... Uh, we have a lot of research papers and new tech that's released, you know, constantly. And you can follow us on Twitter as well, uh, at Blockstream on Twitter. And my personal Twitter is at Excelion. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks again for, for being on the show, Samson. Thanks a lot, Buck. Be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. 
and get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222-QRP-BOOK, one word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. So welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, I um, hopefully hopefully you enjoyed that show. I think uh, for me, it was really helpful because I have these thing about being in my position right now is I read a lot. And so I come up with some of these, you know, uh, you know, I listen to these ideas, but it's always nice to get, you know, uh, get some um, clarification if if my thought processes are are on point or not from somebody like Samson. And I think fundamentally what 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 I think um, I got out of this was, you know, what exactly the issues are with regard to scalability. And really what it comes down to is two things, right? Either there's the camp that that looks at Bitcoin as the transaction itself. You know, it has to be something that, you know, Bitcoin itself is transferring over to somebody else and then to somebody else. And that's the that's the Bitcoin cash camp. That's the wars that are going with on, on within that camp. And then there is the Bitcoin maximalist types who believe that Bitcoin is really, you know, the software it works. It was meant to have a certain size of, of blocks, et cetera. Don't mess with it. What we do is we build a second layer on top of it. And in that regard, it's almost like saying it's almost like, you know, building a, a currency that is pegged pegged to an underlying asset. So, you know, when the U.S. dollar was actually uh, backed by gold, I mean, that's that's sort of, to me, analogous on what the second layer of Bitcoin really is. So the underlying asset in this case is not gold, it's Bitcoin. And then what we're trying to do is build pegged assets that are easier to transfer. And the use of, uh, and those kinds of, uh, the, the transactions made then become sort of the equivalent of, of, of U.S. dollars back when it was pegged to the U.S. currency. And you see that in the form of Lightning Network um, and Liquid, uh, which uh, which Samson was talking about. And, of course, for larger transactions, you know, uh, countries used to settle in gold, right? So, in, and similarly, for larger transactions, you could actually settle in Bitcoin. You don't care if that takes you know, a few minutes to get done in that situation. So very useful. I enjoyed that conversation. So Samson, if you happen to listen to this, thank you for, for, uh, for, for doing it. Now, uh, I have just a couple of questions today. Uh, I do want to remind everyone that I will answer all of your questions as they come in. Uh, please, uh, make sure to go to consensusnetwork.io Leave your questions there. You can also use a voicemail, although no one seems to ever want to do that. I think it would be uh, nice to do that once in a while. Also, you can simply uh, send your emails to your your questions via email to info at consensusnetwork.io, and uh, we'll get those questions uh, answered if we know how to answer them, or at least take a shot at them or ask somebody else. So first question is pretty basic, actually. Uh, it's, Ted, what is the difference between a wallet and an exchange, and is one better than the other? So, Ted, first of all, I would suggest um, going to consensusnetwork.io, uh, and if you go through the tutorials, this should all be very, very clear. But um, just uh, just for some redundancy for those uh, people out there who don't 
who don't really quite understand this or maybe are still kind of listening and learning. So a wallet is the, the, one of the things that makes cryptocurrencies unique is that you custody ideally, I don't want to say about ideally, but one quality of it that people really like is the fact that you custody it yourself. In other words, you don't need a bank to hold on to your money or your investments. You don't need, you know, a, a broker, et cetera. You basically have your own uh, keys to some kind of, uh, you know, whether either hardware or software that allows you to access the digital assets that you own on the blockchain themselves. And that is what a wallet is, right? So that is basically, you know, self-custody. Um, I should point out that there is a difference there between the wallets that you find on, say, like a Coinbase or Gemini. So the difference is that if you go to an exchange like Coinbase or Gemini, you may see something that says a wallet on it. Yeah, it's a wallet, but it's not your wallet. The wallet actually belongs to the exchange and it's um, and it's mixed in with other assets that people own on the exchange, other people's Bitcoin, etc. And it's still in the blockchain, but it's not just, you know, it, you're not, you know, in control of it anymore. It's in custody of Coinbase or Gemini, etc. So that's the big difference there. And of course, that is very different. Um, either kind of wallet is very different from an exchange itself. An exchange, um, the purpose of the exchange is to, in the case of Coinbase or Gemini, et cetera, to either exchange fiat currency for crypto assets, or if you look at, say, a Binance or a Bittrex, uh, some kind of exchange like that, what you're trying to do is exchange um, one digital asset for another. So exchanges are where you exchange, uh, you, you go from one asset to another or from fiat to an asset. Those are also typically where hacks occur. You know, if you have your private keys on a, you know, a hardware uh, wallet, I recommend a ledger. Again, you can go to consensusnetwork.io and, and see some tutorials on that. Then you really can't get hacked right? You really can't get hacked. I mean, you could lose your password, give somebody your private key or, you know, something like that, but you really can't get hacked. Bitcoin has never been hacked. That is something that uh, is a misnomer and that is one of the great qualities of it. So if you're, so, but on the other hand, exchanges have been hacked. And if you go on an exchange and you have your money on a, a quote unquote wallet on an exchange, that leaves you very exposed because, again, all that the hacker has to do is get into the exchange and the next thing you know, they can you know access all these digital assets that are sitting there on the exchanges. So hopefully I answered that accurately and correctly and succinctly. If anybody has any problem with what I'm saying, certainly let me know. Uh, but uh, that uh, that is my understanding and I will stand by that. So uh, the next question what is your favorite project outside of Bitcoin? Well, I don't usually like to talk about this stuff because I think I don't want anybody to go out there and, you know, think of this as financial advice because it's not. Um, I'm not giving you financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I am a guy who likes uh, likes these projects, thinks they're interesting, and I'm sharing my, my own uh, opinions with you, okay? So there's my disclaimer. 
Um, so one of the, the projects that we had earlier on this show right now of, of projects that are currently in existence, one that I really, really like is, is Worldwide Asset Exchange, um, otherwise known as WAX. Now, you can listen to the interview I did with Malcolm Cassell uh, in an earlier episode uh, uh, on, uh, on, on Worldwide Asset Exchange. But Wax is basically a blockchain focused on the gaming industry, and I believe uh, that the gaming industry, personally, I believe that the gaming industry is really where we're going to see large-scale adoption before anywhere else. And the gaming industry is bigger than Hollywood. This is a big, big deal. And that said, I want to point out that so so Wax, by the way, is, is really targeted towards the gaming industry, and with uh, skins and you know they're the same owner uh, the, the owner of Opskins um, is uh, that's the same group that started Worldwide Asset Exchange William Quigley and those guys and they're really smart people so I, I I'm telling you all this but it's not all theory either so there's a an uh, interesting uh, website called Blocktivity.info and you can see there the blockchain activity that's actually occurring. And I'm not talking about necessarily size of transactions. Of course, it's going to be hard to compete with Bitcoin there or something like that, where you know you have you know a lot of money changing hands. But if you want to look at what people are actually using, you know, on a day to day basis, the number of tra- transactions on a blockchain is an incredibly useful number. And if you go to blocktivity.info, you can see that number and you can see that Wax is consistently ranked in the top two busiest blockchains already used. Now, uh, it does seem to switch spots with EOS, um, which is another project that I actually like um, and I own. I own both of these. So there again, disclaimer again. Um, and I actually really like EOS, uh, but you know, what I really love about wax and why I'm talking about wax is because it's use case, right? Um, you can check this out again by listening to the podcast with Malcolm. If you haven't heard that one, or you could go to wax.io, um, because, but at the, at the current prices, I think it's definitely something worth adding to your portfolio. Um, you know, it hasn't moved much in the last, you know, week or two while Bitcoin has, has been, um, moving downward as well. So I think a lot of investors kind of recognize this or positioning themselves. I know, uh, there's a lot of smart people interested in wax, including, uh, Mike Novogratz of, of Galaxy and also, um, uh, I just want to point just again to say that the, this is coming from Opskins, uh, which is, you know, this gigantic uh, player in the, the industry. Again, though, do your own research. Uh, it's a project that I really like, and I think it's something worth uh, considering. And um, by the way, uh, as you can tell, I'm not necessarily a Bitcoin maximalist like like Samson and, and the other guys. I mean, they I mean, I don't pretend to know as much technology as them, but as an investor, I look at something like Wax and I say, wow, this thing has got serious legs. And why? Because people are using it, right? At the end of the day, that's really what is going to drive price on that type of asset. Anyway, um, that's the only two questions I had. So make sure 
folks, let's see you ask me some more questions. Uh, go to consensusnetwork.io or simply shoot me an email at info at consensusnetwork.io. This is Buck Jaffrey with Consensus Network signing off.